just burn up. Is hell an eternal punishment by fire, or do people just burn up? Uh, this is going to come out of Revelation. You're going to help me with this, right, Pastor? Oh, oh, you got him loaded. Oh, look at that. I'm how did fast. that happen? I'm so fast. I can't even tell you how fast I am. All right, somebody peek. All right, go. You can go first. Is hell an eternal punishment by fire? The word hell is is an unfortunate English translation that means many different things in either Hebrew or Greek. The in Revelation, uh, the lake of fire and brimstone, which is often what we think of when we use that single word hell. Hell doesn't even open for business until Revelation chapter 20. So, then the question becomes, and that's after the great white throne judgment. Now, I might be, if I'm saying things that you might not be familiar with, we're going to have to do a study in Revelation. Huh? <laughs> okay, so anyway... Who, okay, and I'm going to answer this question with a question. Does anybody here have any Hebrew translations for the word hell? Or is anybody, or that we recognize or translate in American English, hell? What was the Old Testament? I heard somebody say, was it David? Sheol. Okay. Now. What I'm getting at is that we have to be careful and conscious when we use this word hell. It has different meanings when we talk about different applications. Does anybody ever, has anybody ever heard the word Tartarus? Yeah, we just did this, we just did this Wednesday uh, prayer meeting. Dave, you heard the word Tartarus. Tartarus is a Greek word, and I think it's Second Peter it's found. It also is translated hell. Tartarus is the deepest abyss of what we call hell, or Hebrew would call Sheol. So now I'm back to the question. Is hell an eternal punishment by fire, or do people just burn up? People do not burn up. Souls are eternal. These bodies that we occupy will expire. Souls are eternal. So eternal punishment means that when the lake of fire brimstone what we call hell, Revelation chapter 20, when that opens for business, it is going to be eternal, searing, unpleasant, uncomfortable torment, but your soul will not burn up. Is that, do we think, or do I think, did I answer the question, or did I say, Mike, what in the world are you talking about? It's important to remember, the word we translate in English as hell has many different specific applications. And it's an unfortunate use of the word in the, in the American English. 
Remember, lake of fire and brimstone doesn't even open for business until Revelation 20. So then, what's the destination of, of e- eternal souls damned to, um, well, damnation? Where do they go before Revelation chapter 20? Hades. There's, a, there's, another, there's another word that we translate hell. Clear as mud? No. Any other questions? Yeah. What? Let me try. All right. Uh, to answer the question, <laughs> no, did they not just burn up? Assuming of what you mean is burn up is just complete obliteration. Is that what you're thinking? The place of the dead, basically where place people are held before the judgment. Yes, that is until people are resurrected, because it, it does say in the scriptures that everyone gets resurrected for the final judgment. That's why it's called a second death, because those who are resurrected for the judgment will then face a second death via the flake of fire. Um, and then the question is, in my mind, is those at the lake of fire, do they become obliterated? I would argue No. In fact, that's a heresy called annihilationism. Um, and so, <laughs> heresy is a bad teaching. <laughs> it's a bad teaching. It was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, I think, um, back in the 300s or 400s. Um, in other words, that, so the answer is then, it is an eternal punishment. That's the answer. It's an eternal punishment. It is not a punishment that just simply ceases. Now, what does that look like? I have no idea. Um, we could say that it's fire. We could say that it's something else. It could be psychological. I mean, one of the punishments could simply be that the fire itself burns up the body, and therefore they can never be reconnected with the body. And that itself is punishment because the demons themselves hate that. So what happens if, let's say, a soul is bodiless? That's, that's punishment. Could that be the eternal punishment? I've proposed it to an academic friend of mine, and he said, I'll think about it. Um, so I don't know for sure. And so that's where we have to be cautious when we talk about hell and judgment. Yeah. We, ha- we don't know 100% all of what's going to transpire. We do know, I do believe, that it is an eternal punishment. But what does that entail, that kind of punishment? I have no idea. Um, something I think of is like, you know, a psychological punishment where, have you ever felt like you were wrong, but you just refused to accept that you were wrong and you felt guilty over that? Or have you ever been in a state like that where you're like, I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to be steadfast against you. What if that's the punishment, recognizing you're wrong and you just never turn? That's a punishment psychologically, I think. But that might not be it. I don't know. I'm just making things up at this point, just trying to figure it out. Um, so the, that, I think, answers the main question, though. Is it eternal? Yes. It does not just burn up, or it's not just an oblivion of the soul or the, uh, of the soul. Of the person. Well, one, <clears throat> one other example that Jesus gives us... Um, when he talks about uh, Lazarus and the rich fool, uh, Abraham's bosom, you know, great chasm between the two, although they could see each other, uh, that provides us with a picture of what we define as hell. But I'm, I'm, I, I can't overstate how important it is to be careful how you use that word hell because it translates in English different ways in the Greek and Hebrew. Okay? Go ahead, Alan. 
Now you messed up. Did I mess you up? No, you did, but this brings a new question. I mean, I put any questions in it, but I have one now, and I hate to jump the line. <coughs> Okay, well, okay, go ahead. So you have Hades where like a holding pad for non-believers. Yep. Okay, where do believers go in the holding pad? Okay. Well, okay. Now, let, okay, think, think of the example that Jesus gave when we talked about Lazarus and the rich... Uh, the rich uh, man that was doomed. I'm going to argue him, by the way. You're going to argue? I am. The dead in Christ are rise. So what you're asking is, what is the destination of souls, of, of believers' souls, after, I mean, now, like Jesus Christ, on his work on the cross, what is the destination of believers' souls? Correct. In this century, yes. Okay. Not well, not, not this century. After Christ. Resurrection. Yeah. Well, you were going with the with 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 Lazarus. Yeah. So, and that's what I was going to say is that you can't go Abraham's bosom there, because Jesus is Jesus raised. Okay, go ahead. No, I wasn't going there. Okay, well, you, you well, I was going to go with the crucifixion when Jesus says to the man next to him, "I will see you in paradise." So, after Christ, the souls, at least the the traditional view, I would say, is go to heaven with God. Eventually, they themselves will be raised again physically because, again, we can't think that physical is bad. Physical is good. It was originally created good. God wants us to be in our physical bodies. That will happen at the resurrection um, when we all face judgment. Those who do not go to hell or the lake of fire will have their bodies forever. Yes. Our weight, our, our, our dust, until they're resurrected in the, in, like Christ was resurrected in physical form. So, so yeah, and and also absent from the hey, uh, um, absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? So when, and I know you've heard me say this, you can't see me and I can't see you. Now I'm not being a wise guy. All you see is the shell that I occupy. All I see is the shell, the vessel that you occupy. I can't see your soul. You can't see my soul. All you see is the vessel. So as far as the resurrection, the vessel is going to be resurrected. And God's going to do it. doesn't matter if the vessel was destroyed in a bomb or buried at sea or God's going to resurrect that body. All right, let's go to the next question. Next one. Oh, what was the best, worst part? About vacation Bible school. That's a good one. That's a good one. A contemporary. But of course, VBS was just last week. My job was games. Uh, The best part is just to see God working in the form of volunteers and kids and everybody coming together with the function of, or the purpose of, pronouncing the good news of the gospel. And... uh, the kids are there. There's a measure of enthusiasm. Worst part. Hmm. Worst part. Rain most every night. At least from my perspective, our games were brought indoors and we had to improvise and go to plan B, C, or D as far as what games we could play inside. So that's my answer. Um, the kids. I got to be the 
teacher again, and I love, I really enjoy teaching the kids because they're actually, you know, a lot of times we kind of treat kids like, you know, we need to tear down rainforests in their mind. But the truth is we need to irrigate deserts. We need to help them to think for themselves, to challenge them, to be able to think rather than just assume everything that they're thinking is wrong. Um, and so that's what I always go into it as. And uh, so teaching them, and they have very inquisitive minds. They're interested in religion. They're interested in God and who he is. And so answering their questions is always a delight. Um, the worst part, <laughs> I'm going to be controversial. <laughs> Um, and it does, I don't think this has to do with just our VBS, um, but VBS in general. I've noticed that there tends to be a trend that, um, and I don't think it was emphasized this year or last year like it has in the past. Um, do any of you remember going to, Sun, to VBS, maybe as you guys were kids? Do you guys go, Dan and Heather? Um, do you ever remember like praying a prayer and saying, okay, Jesus is in my heart, and therefore, you know, I believe in all of that, saying a prayer? Um, and then kind of it would get to this point where, okay, this many kids accepted Jesus into their hearts last week, and there would be this oh, praise. And I hate that. I hate it <laughs> with a passion. And the reason why I dislike it so much is because, you know what, those kids could pray a prayer, but that does not mean that they're saved. And there's a danger there. Because, you know what, they could go off then, live however they want to without actually having any knowledge of God, and think that they're okay. And in all honesty, I think that if you were to ask me what one of the biggest problems with uh, American Christianity for the past 50 years has been, it's this easy believism, where, okay, if you just pray a prayer, God will definitely come in. Confession alone is not evidence of salvation. It has never been evidence of salvation. Matthew 7 Uh, Jesus responds to the man who said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do this in your name? Did we not heal? Did we not do miraculous things in your name? And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Um, And so we need to make sure that we are understanding and we need to teach our kids that they understand that confession alone is not enough. Um, True conversion is a complete conversion by God on a person. He's the one who saves us. Um, and that might take, and it might lead to a confession. It probably will lead to a confession. We all confess every week that Jesus is Lord. It's confess and repent. It's to believe and repent. And that's something that I, I'm worried because I did hear that prayer said to a group this past week. And that, I'll be honest, it was, I remember when I was growing up when we did the prayer, as I call it, you know, it was a solemn moment. It was solemn. This wasn't solemn. The kids were just screaming their lungs out the prayer. They had no knowledge of what they were saying. They didn't understand it. And so, again, my my almost wept because I think, my goodness, they're going away thinking that they're saved, and they're really not. And that's tragic to me personally. Um, But that's my best and my worst is what I would say. Okay. We'll do this one. All right. Do you, <laughs> this is yours. <laughs> or it's not yours, but it's one that you'll like to answer. Do you think that there are degrees of reward? In other words, will, will, <laughs> in other words, will someone like Billy Graham receive a great reward? Go ahead. You answer it first. 
I lean toward yes, but I also want to couple that with this idea. And that is at the end, when we're all before Jesus, we don't take the crowns for ourselves. We give them back to Jesus. Um, It's not a matter of, in my mind, you know what, yes, I strive, but I don't strive for a reward. I strive for Jesus Christ. Um, And that's something that we'll get, especially later on, when we are in front of Christ and we're sitting in awe of all that he has done and all of his glory and saying, you know what, I don't even deserve this. (laughs) Here, it belongs to you. Um, And so I would say, yes, there are degrees of reward, and that's wonderful, but in the end, it all belongs to Jesus. So, Yep, I, I agree, and I, uh, oh, I can't remember what the occasion was or when, but I know I had talked about degrees of reward. James. And tell you what else, if I didn't say this then, I'd say it now. There's degrees of punishment. And I get that from uh, the words of Jesus in Luke. I can't remember the verse where... The one who knew and didn't do is going to get more floggings than the one who didn't know. Uh, I'm thinking Luke 18, but I might, I'm I'm close. (laughs) But degrees of punishment, absolutely. And degrees of reward. How that's going to look, exactly, I don't know. And... uh, the analogy that was shared with me at one time years ago, um, and it's not really a great analogy. Think of yourself as being on the winning World Series baseball team. Now, if you were in the starting lineup and you were active in that, you're, I mean, you're, you're right into it. Now, if you were sitting on the bench... You're still on the team, but you're contributing to the team. You're part of the team. That's an analogy that works for me as far as degrees of reward. Um, does that answer question, whoever brought that up, or is there any other comment or discussion? Yes, degrees of reward. Yes, degrees of punishment. I actually didn't have anything else. I was going to pick another one. <laughs> Um, ooh, philosophical one, you ready? (laughs) It's technically a two-parter. Why do you believe that God exists, and why are you a Christian? And I would argue that that's actually good that there's two parts to that, because one could believe that God exists and not be a Christian. First philosophical point is that. (laughs) Um, Do you want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. This is like a personal testimony. I know, isn't it? All right, well... All right, well, how do I know God exists? Well, first of all, I know reasonably. So there's certain arguments that I have been presented in life that adhere to my mind. And I say, okay, you know what? Yes, they, God does exist because of the arguments. And like for one, uh, it's called the cosmological argument. And that's a big word, but um, it basically means this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. In other words, bunny rabbits don't just pop into existence right here, do they? They have to have a cause. Um, yeah, let's say uh, trees, there's not going to be a tree that just randomly pops up when you're walking along. 
unless you happen to not notice it. Um, but then it was still there the whole time. It didn't just pop into existence. So everything that, that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Now this is scientifically verifiable. We know that the universe itself began to exist at a certain point in the past. Um, the reason we know this is we talked about the second law of thermodynamics earlier, in which case energy is slowly being um, taken away from the universe. Well, if the universe has been eternal, the energy would have already run out. So we can know for a fact, okay, yes, uh, the universe began to exist. We have other verifiable evidence, uh, you know, Einstein type of physics, things like that. Then the conclusion is that, okay, if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. Now, the universe can't just cause itself. It would take something that is greater than the universe, it's uh, more powerful, is um, all these, any word you want to describe. And ultimately, it can only come down to two possibilities, two abstract possibilities. It's either a mind, such as God's, or numbers, things like that. Numbers, because they're abstract. You know, num numbers don't really have any... They can't cause anything, the point is. So therefore, it must be God. God, therefore, exists. Uh, we could use another one called, um, let's see, the ontological argument. And this one was produced by St. Anselm, and he was a really, really clever guy. And he said that if God exists possibly, then he must exist, necessarily. Now you think, okay, how does that work? All right, well, it goes like this. If a maximally great being, that is a being that is 100% moral, knows all things, is all-powerful, um, if it even exists in some world, universe, whatever you want to use, if it even exists in one, then it must exist in all because otherwise it wouldn't be maximally great. It must exist then in all worlds. That one... I will tell you right now, has philosophers spinning their heads <laughs> because that is a philosophical argument and it's actually airtight. Um, so if ever you are in a debate with an atheist, you can bring that one up, for example, and say, okay, is this logically consistent? And it is 100% log logically consistent. Um, another one, I'll go two more, I guess. One is, I think, the moral argument. Um, where does morality come from? Why does morality exist? Um, why do we know that it's wrong to murder people? Can you have morality without God is the question. The answer is no. You cannot have morality without God. Um, now that does not mean that someone who is an atheist can't be moral. They can be moral, but there's no reason for them to be moral without God. There's no cause. Um, and so we see that in regards to, okay, uh, an absolute immorality. Uh, if you don't have an absolute immorality, then you have subjective morality. In other words, it's like ice cream flavors. Let's say Dan and Heather. Dan likes chocolate, I'm assuming. I'm just making this up. Heather likes vanilla. That's subjective. They each, as a subject, look at something and say, this is my preference. Do you think our society says that about morality? I would say yes. <laughs> Fact value split. Um, so therefore, let's say sexual morality. There are some who say, preference-wise, I pr pr want this, 
others say this, you can't tell them that they're wrong. That's subjectivism. Christians, however, believe in an absolute morality. And the way that we understand it is that God himself is the one who provides it. So we see morality because God is moral in his being. It's not a matter of, okay, like God chose this, therefore it was moral, or that it was moral, therefore God chose it. It is moral simply because of God in his person. He is 100% moral. So we have a foundation for morality. That's why we can say, this is wrong, that's right, this is wrong, that's right. Um, and so if, let's say, someone says, oh, well, how, do you, like, how can that be true? You know, I don't think that that's true. All you got to do is bring up one point, and that's Nazism. If you say to them, if they say to you, oh, well, you know, I believe that morality is subjective, ask them if they think Nazism was right. Because if they say it was right, they're really, they're not like most people. <laughs> but if they say it was wrong, which they will 100% of the time as far as I've used the argument, then they will be those who say, look, obviously there is a distinction between right and wrong. There is a moral base. Um, and so that's what I would say. Then finally, I would say personality. Uh, humans have person, personhood. You are a personally different person than anyone else. Um, where does that come from? You don't have that kind of personhood in anything else in all of creation. And nature, by itself, doesn't have personhood. You go to a tree, it might be different than another tree, but it doesn't have personhood. So where does that come from? Where does personality come from? And I would argue God. But there's a few other ones that I would recommend. As for why I'm a Christian, it then leads to, you know what, the Christian worldview makes sense of the whole world around me. So when I look at it and I say, okay, God does exist, it's logical, it's reasonable, and then I look at my own personal life and my things that have happened in my heart or around me, I can say, okay, the God of the Bible is the one who makes most sense for all of this. Um, and he's moved in me. His Holy Spirit is in me. I have my own personal experiences with this God. And that's just as valid knowledge as anything else so I uh, I guess every every one of us comes to the Lord in perhaps different circumstance what well what I was going to say I mean I, I mean we're, we're doing a philosophical thing now in Sunday school and this is like my first time ever <laughs> like I'm not a philosophical guy or at least I don't consider myself as that but anyway, from my personal experience, and each one of us has a personal experience of how we came to the Lord, what series of events, what interactions, what, uh, you know, whatever life story that you have, that that moment in time when you came to recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that you have violated a holy and pure God, and you need help. There's lots of different ways that get us to that point, circumstances, but there's only one power that does that, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. So, I am intrigued with having a new awareness of all this philosophy stuff. Kind of. I ain't, I ain't saying it's fun. You'll get there. But... <laughs> For me, that moment in time when I acknowledged that I was a sinner in need of a Savior, from that point forward, all I can tell you is that I know that I know that I know that I know. 
and I have a certainty that I can't be any more descriptive of. And what was the other part of that question? Well, why are Christian? Why oh, why am I a Christian? Uh, uh, why am I I'm a Christian? Because of well, I can say the moment in time when I recognized that I uh, uh, I was at a church service and I responded to an order call. And so, why am I a Christian? Because I was invited to attend church. At, I hadn't been a churchgoer, um, but I had grown up through you know, a religious life system, but I wasn't a Christian. Um, that's kind of my personal testimony, my personal story. And the, as far as what reinforces, I know that I know that I know. You, as a believer, you don't have to throw your brain cells into the trash can and accept by faith that all of this is really true. There is... Oh, as we were talking about trees. As you're talking about nature, you're talking about, of course, you all know I'm a tree guy. <clears throat> as you see the complexity in nature and getting into, well, why is this tree species different than that? And then you get into the critters, the animals. Then you get into the microorganism. The design and the complexity of creation is convincing to me. And uh, anyway, that's kind of my personal story. So, and I know we're running out of time, big time. But I'm I'm cool with staying however long we want. If anybody wants to leave, they're welcome to leave. But a few more. <clears throat> Expand on the idea of age of accountability. Do you think that today's children are less accountable? because of their lack of exposure to the gospel. Let me answer this last part, last question first. Do you think that today's children are less accountable because of their lack of exposure to the gospel? No. And I'm going to argue that it's not a valid argument to say that kids are less exposed to the gospel. Now, they might not get the affirmation and encouragement and motivation at home that others get. But I'm going to say that it is not possible for an individual that lives in the United States of America to not have heard or been exposed to the gospel in some shape, manner, or form within the context of even if it's Somebody surfing through the television channels say, oh, it's a church program. I don't want that. Just They know it's there. Same way with radio channels. They know it's there. There is an exposure. No, so as far as the age of accountability, is it an excuse that, oh, because I didn't get the grown or the, um, you know, the, the help from home, is there any less accountability for a child, no. Now, that's going to bring age of accountability. There is no hard and fast age. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to successfully answer this question to anyone. Certainly the, uh, the opportunity 
to reject Christ is equivalent to the opportunity to accept Christ. And that's why I say there's... uh, If you wanted to use the example of, like, family influence as far as being a deterrent to accepting Christ, does that... Does that give a free pass to a child or anybody? Nope. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would even, I can't put a definitive age on it. Some people have said in the past 13, for example, as like the, the, that is. um, But I mean, and my understanding of it would be, you know what, as soon as a child is able to comprehend sin, I mean, that's right and wrong is the age at which one could recognize salvation. So that's generally my understanding. But um, let's keep going. This one was, is global warming biblical? All right, I guess from, can I be, t- yeah, I mean, from a technical perspective, I don't, I, I guess to me, um, yes and no. I mean, God created the world, and if the world were to get warmer and the f- oceans would rise a bit, you know, so be it. <laughs> like, that's just the way that the world was created. Um, do I think necessarily, let's say, the whole argument that Al Gore makes, <laughs> I would say, no, I don't agree with all of Al Gore says. Do I think that, you know, the floods will come and destroy all the world because of global warming? No, I don't think that. I think that it would naturally start to cool once the flood waters started to rise a bit. That's just the way nature works, logically. Um, that's my, that would be my argument in the end. Um, however, if you want to talk about, you know, meteors coming down, that could happen. Um, but no, I mean, that's, it is yes and no, I guess. It's, if we're saying that it would destroy all the world, no, it's not biblical. If we're saying that it can happen in nature because that's the way God made nature so that when things heat up and it's ice, it's going to melt, then yes. Does it mean that humans are the ones who are causing it? I have no idea. I mean, that's, I've heard all the arguments back and forth, and it, it doesn't really affect me personally. Until I'm underwater, right? <laughs> then I'll have to think about it. This isn't my question, but this is, will there be coffee in heaven? <laughs> will there be, huh? Or is it decaf? And is it decaf? <laughs> is there call or will it be? Co- I uh, no, probably not, because we're going to have bodies that are not mortal. We're going to have bodies that won't require daily sustenance. Uh, we're going to have a created body that's completely different than this. So my answer is nope. Possibly. Um. <laughs> And the reason why is that Jesus says to the disciples, I will not eat with you again until you're with me in heaven, um, indicating that there will be food in heaven. Um, and he did eat the fish. He, he broke the bread with, with those. So I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that there, like, we won't, maybe we won't need sustenance, but we'll still be able to partake of sustenance because God created our bodies that way. I have no idea. Um, but it's possible that coffee will, in fact, be in heaven, maybe. Last one. All right. Uh, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all of your mind? Uh, I have a question. Back to everybody else. When you hear love the Lord your God with all of your mind, do you think 
that that means primarily don't have bad thoughts. Like, just keep your thoughts from being impure. Don't think bad things about or hate people or things like that. Um, Because if that's your thought, I'm going to say, no, that's not it. Um, And the reason why is that, and I finally found it when I was flipping through, but in Matthew 15, um, they're sitting there and Jesus says, you know what, what defiles a person is not what goes in through the mouth, but what comes out of the person. And then he goes on to say that it's out of the heart come evil thoughts. So evil thoughts is not the issue. Um, What it means to love the Lord your God with all your mind then is to love him with all of your reason, to know God, to spend time um, taking, taking time to be studying about him. Uh, for children, this is really good for us to teach our children. God wants us to learn. It's okay to learn. It's good to learn. In fact, we can glorify God when we use our minds. And we should be training our kids like that. And like Mike said earlier, you know, we don't have to just throw away our brains when we come to the faith. Um, I think Francis Schaeffer, and I've used this before, um, he one time used the analogy that, uh, let's say that you're in the Alps. Well, sometimes what happens in the Alps is that a heavy fog will just come right in, and you can't see anything in front of you. Now, let's say that you're in the Alps, and that happens, and someone calls down from you and says, hey, walk 10 feet forward, and you'll be saved. Are you by faith just going to walk 10 feet forward? (laughs) No, (laughs) I would hope not. I would hope that you would ask the voice questions. How long have you been living in the Alps? Tell me about your vantage point. How do you see me? Where are you in perspective of where I am? Um, You start getting to know the voice rather than simply following what the voice says. And that's the same with all faith. God doesn't just leave it so that you can't know him. In fact, that's why Jesus came, so that we could know God even more than we once did. Um, And so because of that, I would say that's what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. It means don't give up up here. Keep studying. Keep researching. Keep Getting to know the Lord with your head. And, you know, if that leads to philosophy like we're doing now, or if it leads to reading through scriptures, or if it leads to studying science, why not? I mean, most people don't realize that all the early scientists of the revolutionary period were Christians. In fact, a lot of them will be sitting there taking their scientific notes and then all of a sudden break into hymn writing because they were so amazed at what God had done in creation. That's awesome. Um, and so that's what we should be encouraging is just go ahead, learn. It's good to learn. Use your mind, um, but use it for good, <laughs> not evil. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be theologically accurate here, but the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the concept of loving the Lord with all your mind, actually, I think, the actual scriptural text is love the Lord with all your mind, body, or heart, mind. heart, mind, soul. It means all of you. The completeness of you. In other words, you, and, I, and I've shared this with kids before. You, you can't be talking with God and, oh, got my fingers crossed behind my back. You know, as far as, you have to be all in. You know, Who's going to admit to ever watching the TV show, you know, Texas Hold'em, the poker game? Nobody's going to admit it. I dab. (laughs) All in. You know what it means? When you're all in. I mean, this is it. And our lives with uh, 
with the Lord. He wants us to be all in and uh, not holding anything back. You don't have your fingers crossed. You don't have any provisos. You're all in. So that's all, all what I'm, that's my answer. And I, and I will agree with that because when it means, you know, love the Lord with all of your heart, that means all of your affections. Um, when it says love the Lord with all of your mind, it means all of your reasoning. When it says love the Lord with all of your strength, your body, and with all of your soul, your being. So you're right, Mike. I mean, it, it leads ultimately, the whole of the text leads to a complete love for God with all that you are. Um, and so that's something that goes against American Christianity, though, where... You know, you love, the God, you love God only by worshiping on Sundays, and that's it. But that's not what God wants. He wants all of you from the way you run your businesses to the way you learn to the way that you go to work to the way that you love your wives or love your children or love other people. He wants all of it. Um, all of it falls under his sphere because he is truly Lord of all. And that's how we do love him is by giving all of it to him. All right. Um, I think that's... I think that's the end of the questions. Unless there's anything else? Yes? No? Maybe? So? All right. Um, how about we pray? And then we will head into our final song, and then we'll go to communion. Father, we thank you so much that you do not get annoyed with questions. In fact, you even encourage questions of us. You want us to reason with our minds. You want us to search you out with all of our beings. And we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who doesn't just quiet us down, but who will actually give us answers to all of the questions that come to our minds. Um, And even tell us at times if they're nonsensical. (laughs) And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to have us search, continue to have us know, And continue to have us um, be blessed with this new change of mind that comes through following after Jesus Christ. And as Paul taught us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Lord, let us continue to do this. And again, we thank you for all that you have done, for all of the revelation, and for all the blessings. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn before communion.